You're listening to Dig Deep, K-A-X-E, K-B-X-E. We've got conservative commentator Chuck Marone with us and liberal Aaron Brown. We're talking about where we are right now. I don't know if it's specifically to copper nickel mining and the proposed polymet and proposed twin metals project, but that's kind of the where the conversation began, I well, think. Coming out of this basically fringe environmental movement, kind of overthrowing culturally the consensus around progress that created all this environmental destruction. What, what came out of this was the environmental review process. And, and this is what I think is important to understand about where we were at in the 70s, because I've called this a fringe movement, not to denigrate it, but to actually elevate it, to say, like, these were ideas that were not part of the mainstream governing consensus, but came from mm-hmm. people and became part of what we were because it had broad support amongst people. We should not pollute the environment. We should not destroy the planet we live on. You know, there's all these things that come out of this. The agreement was we were going to do, and let's just call it environmental reviews. We were going to have an environmental review process. So if you were going to go out and do something, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be destructive. And to the extent that it was going to be destructive, we minimize that or mitigated it. So we took and and reduced the amount of destruction. And if there was destruction that couldn't be avoided, we did something over here to like compensate for that. And so the idea was we would create this kind of regulatory framework. Here's what I think is not well appreciated. And and this is why I want to start back Mm -hmm. with, you know, this consensus because every environmental review is designed in its essence to facilitate the permit that is being required is being requested. So when you start an environmental review process, you are not starting a process to say, should we or should we not do this? You are starting a process that says, this is allowed by law to happen. How are we going to do this in the most environmentally conscious way? That is a 1970s law. Mm -hmm. That's basically like the compromise that was made at the time between what I think was the the governing bipartisan consensus about the need for progress and advancement versus the populist fringe uprising of don't do this to us, don't do this to me, don't destroy things. We've now, our politics has changed. And I think when we look at that particular bargain, It's very unpalatable to us today. And we devolve into this, you know, the environmental process should stop bad projects. Well, it doesn't. It's not designed Mm -hmm. to do that. That's not what it was set out to do. And because of the fact that these things are settled only partially in political realms, they're often settled in civil court process, in the environmental courts and, and the regulatory process. That means that lawyers, certainly on both sides, I don't know which side spends the most I would guess the companies because they have the most. But in the in the lawyering process, the regulations become really the the framework of a game that they play. Getting around this part of the law, that part of the law, or enforcing this part of the law, or uh, maybe maybe emphasizing this point of the law to be even bigger of importance than it was intended. All of these things become part of a very involved, very expensive legal game. I, I think if you talk to people on either side of the issue, environmental advocates or uh, pro-company position people or those in between, the thing they always talk about is the legal process that's involved. Well, that's true. And in one hand, you'd say, well, that shouldn't be. But that's, I think, where everybody wants it because here's the thing. No elected official, 
though elected by the people, theoretically representing the people, nobody wants to be the one to say yay or nay to a project. No one wants to kill the jobs. They and, don't want to kill the and jobs. No one wants to be responsible for the right. environment. Because if it goes right. either way, they are exposed to all the blame for anything that might go wrong. Again, either way. Mm-hmm. And what we run into with this, and it, it's only more evident in this case with the non-ferrous mining, copper nickel mining, sulfide mining, depends on your point of view. The debate has three names based on your politics. But uh, whatever you want to call it, Polymet is one, Hoyt Lakes, mouth of the old LTV mine, or Twin Metals, which is closer to Ely, relatively near the Boundary Waters. Different projects, sometimes lumped together, sometimes parceled out separately for their locations. But what you run into is the fact that the central argument coming out of the environmental opposition is this. This form of mining is particularly dangerous in high water environments. The only times this is done with any kind of environmental safety is in dry environments like out west or in parts of Mexico or South America. But anytime it's close to water, you will always have the risk of uh, sulfate contamination in certain circumstances. Again, it's not like there's a poison in the water that gets out. It's there are, there are conditions in the water that allow a chemical reaction to take place in certain circumstances. And that's dangerous to wildlife, water quality, and uh, creates damage that has to be mitigated if it, if it does happen. So their central argument is, these are water-rich environments. Northern Minnesota, in case you haven't noticed, is water-rich. Our, our main commodity from a tourism standpoint is water, both its proximity and its quantity. And uh, this is a particularly dangerous thing to even attempt, um, and therefore it should not be done. Well, that's an argument, and there could be a basis for that argument. I'm not judging that argument, but... If that's your argument, a permit process is... If that's your argument, our yeah. environmental rules are not set up to handle that, that argument. Yeah, that argument's not... The, the permitting process doesn't process that argument. No, in, in um, fact, it, it actually rejects it in mm-hmm. many ways. Right. I, I look at the Twin Metals Project, and I think if we went back to the 1970s, or early 1980s, and, and plucked out the bipartisan governing consensus from that time and said, you know, how would you view this? They would say, well, is it within the boundary waters or not? No. Okay, well, the within the boundary waters is protected, is off limits. You can't do anything there. And outside of it, we have a, a permitting process that you would go through to mitigate any potential impact. And, and that would be straightforward how they would do that. Whether they couldn't conceive of this different process that's being used, whether they thought, yeah, you know, but progress, but progress. We could we could debate that historically. I'm sure there were lots of different viewpoints. The reality is that the argument, as as Aaron has set it forward, doesn't apply to our current permitting. It's outside of it. And I, I think that in a very... And I was just going to use the word toxic. I, I don't. I don't mean toxic as the way our politics are toxic, but maybe like in a in a culturally flammable way. It's one of those things that kind of ties very neatly into our left right divide. If you are on the political left and push back on this, uh, this is a caricature, uh, a, a broad description. But if you're on the political left, I think it's very easy for you to look at the intent or what you perceive as the intent of the law and say, 
my gosh, the intent of the the Boundary Waters Law was to protect this wilderness area. Yes, if you're going to build, even if it's not within it, and by the letter of the law, it, it, it you know it means you're still going to have this impact on it. And so the intent of the law is being undermined here. If you are on the the conservative side of the spectrum, and you are more of a law and order kind of what what are the rules? Let's follow the rules. Let's set them up. And you know we can't pull the rug out from underneath someone making an investment at the last moment. You're looking at this going, well, this is loony. Like, you're just changing the law however you want. Like, it's a moving goalpost. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? And th- those two reactions, and I'll say this as the conservative, those two reactions, I think, are very normal human reactions from a certain mm-hmm. perspective. And I don't know as they can be uh, – let me say, I don't think they can be resolved satisfactorily through the environmental review process. Right, because the courts ultimately will fall back on, well, we don't have the power to make legislation. The legislature or Congress or whatever level of government you're dealing with needs to rule on this because we, the courts, can only enforce our interpretation of the laws. You were very kind in, in pointing out some nice ar- arguments for what, what liberals might see out of this. I'll, I'll point this out as an example. The wild rice standard, for instance, is one of the cruxes, one of the main points in environmental regulation surrounding, in particular, these these non-ferrous mines. I believe it's uh, 10 parts out of a million or anyway, it's a very a certain level because of the risk of anything higher than that getting out of the, the closed water system and the risks it pre- presents. And the argument has been uh, over whether this 10 parts or this number 10 is the right number. Well, the argument coming from the mines and pro-mining people in general has been, well, hold on a second. 10 is kind of an, seems like an arbitrary number. Um, You can drink up to 250 parts per million. That's the regulation for drinking water. Lots of waters in our sewage uh, wastewater treatment plants produce higher numbers than 10. And you're saying that if we're going to enforce that, then all of these little small towns are going to have to install all these expensive systems. Are you really saying that that's the number? And then the dirty little secret, uh, literally, I guess, is uh, that most of the pits outside, the tailings ponds and the pits outside of iron mining communities are considerably higher than that, uh, sometimes to the tune of, of thousands uh, of parts per million compared to the 10 that's supposed to be. Now, how did that happen? Well, the, the actual answer is that that little rule was put in, yes, to protect wild rice as part of a broad spectrum of rules. Actually, um, Grant Merritt wrote a book, uh, one of the early pollution control agency commissioners in the state of Minnesota, Grant Merritt, the um, grandson of the Merritt family who discovered iron ore on the Masabi. So there's this interesting connection between in the family. And he was part of the process that created the the standard, but pointed out in his book, and, and you can observe that for years it wasn't enforced at all. It wasn't monitored very well, and if it was monitored, it sure wasn't enforced. Uh, because it became clear that the numbers were all much higher than 10, and, and that nobody was going to do anything about it. And after a year or two or three or five or 10, you start to get used to leaving it the way it is. And then the burden um, towards companies to suddenly take a pit that has a 1,000 parts per million and getting it down to 10, the technology exists sort of, but it's extraordinarily expensive technology. And in reality, it would shut down mines. In reality, it would. And so nobody wants to deal 
with that. Nobody wants to compromise. The environmentalists have a good argument in that this was on the books for a reason. There was original research that showed that wild rice does not thrive in the watershed of waters that have this amount. However, there's new research and different research and, of course, company-sponsored research that all show very different things. But, but I've talked to some people, I mean, I've talked to scientists who look at this and say, you know, at 10, it might, you could go higher than 10, but you probably wouldn't want to go much higher than 50. And so, but here we are, haggling over numbers, right. what the right number is. And initially in the PolyMet uh, project, you started hearing about their reverse osmosis process that they were proposing to use to reduce levels. That's Aaron Brown. He's our liberal commentator for Dig Deep on member-supported KEXE, KBXE. I'm Heidi Holton. Thanks for tuning in to our radio program as well as our podcast. Aaron's talking with our conservative commentator, Chuck Marone, and we're learning about environmental regulation from their points of view, where it came from, where we're at now. Aaron's been talking about sulfate levels in water. The state and federal governments have standards for sulfate so that they do not become sulfides that can harm our water quality. Aaron Brown tells us more about the reverse osmosis process. It, it's a it's a machine. It's literally they have it in a shed. They had a demo. They had a shed with a reverse osmosis machine, and they hooked the hose up and chugga 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 chugga. And 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 over time, just like running a pump or running a filter, it gradually like a like a dehumidifier in your basement. It's not much more complicated than that. Other than there, I shouldn't say it is probably a little more complicated than that. But but it it functions like that if you can imagine. And and over time, it does its job quite remarkably, but also quite fallibly you know it's a little machine and 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 really the only way to do it in larger and larger bodies of water with larger and larger production is to run more and more machines you know and and you can just kind of you're getting into a math problem now how many how many of these can you run how big can you scale up you're in an engineering question here well and and how much emissions do you produce doing that well who knows i don't know you've got all these other uh yeah and how expensive, more importantly for the whether the projects go or not, how expensive is this? The iron mines say we don't want to run reverse osmosis on these on these pits. It's ridiculous. We just it would cost so much money to get our pits down to the standard. We just won't do it. I mean, they don't go out and write press releases that say that, but that's basically the political layout of the land there. And and then Polymet was saying, oh, we want our permits, so we're going to hit that ten parts. We can do it. Because we've got reverse osmosis and we're going to plan for it from the beginning so it won't be so bad. Well, as this process plays out, there are lots of different moving parts. One regulatory, but one is economic. And they're trying to get the cost of their project down so they can package themselves for sale and and management by a larger company, which is where we get into some of the international companies that have got involved. They don't want to run reverse osmosis any more than U.S. Steel wants to run reverse osmosis. And and so this is the other unspoken part of this debate, as environmental groups know, everybody knows this. But um, the question is how much, and to get to a point Chuck was making earlier about progress, and how much progress do we want for ourselves? The question is, how many eggs do you want to crack 
to make this omelet? You know, and what are you willing to do for this omelet? Let me drive that home as a final point here, mm-hmm. just a, a little, make it a little more personal for people listening. The, the state's environmental regulations for shoreline development say you can cover up to 25% of your lot with structure. This is right out of the Clean Water Act being administered here locally. Research has shown now that as soon as you start to get up over 8 9%, on most lakes, there's some lakes where the watershed is bigger or smaller. There's variation by watersheds. There's variation by soil types. There's variation by vegetation types. But as a general rule, when you start getting up over 8 9%, you have damage suffered by the water. You start negatively impacting the water quality. Well, let's go around all these lakes. I mean, I, I've been in these meetings where the people are showing up opposing new development around lakes because of the bad impact it will have and da 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 And you go out and their lot is 25% impervious coverage, consistent with the law. Do we get them down to 9%? Do we say you've got to shrink your lake home? You've got to start taking out these accessory buildings. You've got to start replanting your shoreline, getting rid of your riprap and your vegetation. What has happened is that We established a set of rules and processes in the 70s. They dealt with the problem at that time, right? Like I I think Mm -hmm. we we can sit here, both of us, bipartisan way, agree that like this moved the ball forward. Um, These are clumsy regulations. They do not address either the technology or the, the new science on these impacts. And they also create this situation where you have endless bureaucratic Rang- entanglement and endless kind of litigation and lots of, in a sense, corporate power coming to bear in ways that I think, again, in this fringe populist way, don't really represent what people think. A good example would be just a couple of years ago when the state PCA was trying to solve the riddle of the wild rice standard problem by saying, well, scientifically, the best thing to do would be to, to test every lake and every watershed and see what it, what the layout is like you say like soil type presence of other presence of iron presence of other minerals affect the process chemically that we're talking about and so one standard for one for everything isn't scientifically accurate why don't we go lake by lake watershed by watershed and try to figure this out and the reality is i could probably see if i'm a scientist the merits of that but both the state, the regulatory body, and the companies rejected that out of hand. We don't want to go lake by lake, watershed by watershed. There's too many variables. We don't want variables. We want regulatory certainty is the term you keep hearing. And that means they want the standard to be the same for everything. They just want it to be much higher, you know, much, much more forgiving than it is now. We're going to continue this conversation about where we're going. It'll be so uh, exciting, though. Stay tuned. Next segment, <laughs> next part of Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE.